Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, everybody. I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn, the story of animation. Okay, so let me set the stage. I love animation. I super love it. Like when I was a kid, I relished my Saturday mornings in front of the TV where I would just sit there with my cereal and my pets and I would commune with everyone from Snagglepuss to the Super Friends. Duck season! Rabbit season! Rabbit season! Duck season! And it looks like you will take a licking. Dooby dooby doo. It was an amazing time. And the thing is, that connection, that love, has never diminished for me. In fact, as an adult, I probably watch more animation than I ever did as a kid. I put Bugs Bunny on my wedding invitations. Watch up, Doc. It is a lifelong relationship that I am not willing to give up. Because this is such a rich medium, it's capable of taking viewers to places that conventional television and film, which I also love, just can't quite go, though. It's art, and it's entertainment, and it's science, but it's also magic. Ugh, there goes the next half hour of my life. In this 11-episode series, we're going to explore a bunch of different topics in animation, from music to voiceover to what makes a really deliciously great villain. He's cracked. He's gone nuts. Jaffa! But before we get into those specifics, it seems like a good idea for this first episode to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how a cartoon actually gets made, and also give you a snapshot of the industry as it is today, as well as take a look at the legacies that have built it. It starts. Have you ever been sitting on your couch watching a piece of animation and having that sort of metaphysical moment where you wonder how it all comes together? By the time we sit back and enjoy a show, countless hours of artistry and production and decision-making have gone into the process. So to find out how all of those pieces of work turn into an actual cartoon, I got the chance to talk to all kinds of people who make the shows that you and I watch and love. To start with, if a show is going to be produced by a network first, it has to get greenlit. And that's one of those like weird nebulous things that people talk about, but unless you're in it, you may not fully understand how this works. I talked to Mike Lazo, the executive vice president in charge of Adult Swim. Basically, he started Adult Swim. 
he got handed the responsibility to build this entire programming block. So literally from Space Ghost Coast to Coast, all the way to all of the things you see today on Adult Swim, including things like Rick and Morty, he was part of making all of that happen. So basically, he gets asked all day, every day by people if they will take their show and greenlight it. Well, it's always different. Uh, Sometimes somebody will walk in with one sentence, seven words, and sold. Sometimes you never get there. You might look at document after document. So it kind of depends on the creator. Most normally, someone will just write a paragraph, send it to us. And then the first question is almost always, what have they done? Uh, Is there something that we can look at in their background, whether it's YouTube, whether it's an existing show they've worked on, whether they wrote a book, whatever it is, we will look at their history to see, should we give them half a million dollars to do a pilot? Next, I talk to Seth Green and Matt Senreich. Those are the guys that are behind the wonderfully irreverent and hilarious Robot Chicken, which is that show that you've seen that's stop-motion animation that's done entirely with toys. Welcome to Orientation Day here on the jolly old Death Star. Now, there are a few things we want to go over with you concerning Lord Vader. First and foremost, he thinks he has the power to strangle us. Truth is, he doesn't. If he ever realized this, he would kill us with his lightsaber. Thus, to keep us safe, we'll all pretend to get strangled. Okay, let's try practice. We got insight from them on what this whole process of greenlighting is from the other side of the table. They told us the story of their kind of weird, a little bit frightening meeting with Mike Lazo and Keith Crawford, who's the senior vice president of Adult Swim, so they could discuss possibly having a show on their network. That's the weirdest meeting I think I've ever had. So the most confusing and and um, successful meeting we've ever had. <laughs> In this case, they had already made a series of stop-motion animations with toys that was called Sweet J Presents. That was originally for Sony's website, Screen Blast. And Screen Blast ultimately failed, but that meant that these guys had this content that they could shop around to other people. So Mike Lazo and Keith Crawford... Who we'd never met up until this point. Yeah. Came out to Los Angeles, and they had an empty office on the Third Street Promenade it's in It's like that scene Santa in Monica. the game where Michael Douglas shows up in that office, just has a bunch of, like, pulled phone extensions and rug fibers everywhere. So we go into this empty office, and the empty office has three chairs for four people. So we didn't really know. There's a know. desk with a chair behind it. Michael Azu is sat at the desk in the <laughs> chair. We sit into these two other chairs, and Keith Crawford, who we had not met up until this point, is just, just standing with his arms folded behind <laughs> Mike. And we, we're like, What is going on is here? Like, is this the bodyguard? So like, I don't know murdered? what's happening. I feel like I'm getting made right now. <laughs> and, and Mike's first line was something like, he's like, I don't like stop motion. <laughs> And we're like, okay, but I think your show is funny. Yeah. And we're like, he was he was proposing okay? this conundrum to us to solve. He was like, now I, I know I don't like this, but but I think it's funny. We we're like, I don't. Is that a yes? What, what happened? What happened here? Yeah, but uh, but and I yeah. think they even asked this, like, how does how is this a show? Yeah. And then we tap danced a little bit, like, oh yeah, obviously it's it's a show. Okay, so at this point in the process, everything's a go. You've gotten the green light. Well, then what happens? I'm going to let Michael Olin answer that. He is Cartoon Network's chief marketing officer, but that really doesn't tell you exactly how important he is at the company. One, he also is the creator of the absolutely hilarious and, again, irreverent Harvey Birdman attorney at law. 
That's a show that's been a cornerstone of Adult Swim from the beginning. So, need something notarized? <laughs> nah, we came back to sue you all for completely ruining the planet. <laughs> well, now, I'm not so sure you can say without a doubt that we're actually ruined. Oh, what is that? That's what you get when you genetically modify corn a little too much. I'll take the case. Great. You're in a unique position because you're an executive, but you are also a creative. It's a weird position to How be in. How tricky is that? It's, it's pretty tricky. <laughs> to ride. It's pretty tricky. Michael's been in animation forever. He really knows what he's doing. He's been a creative driving force at the network pretty much from the beginning. So brace yourself because you are about to get a crash course in animation. Okay, from idea to air. Maybe there's an outline, you know, and the artist will sit around and come up with scenarios. And they'll draw. At Cartoon Network Studios, they'll draw on post-it notes. And they'll put the post-it notes on the wall. And that's kind of becomes this living storyboard. That way they can take a post-it note off the, the wall and change a frame and not disturb the whole storyboard. And they'll line all four walls of a room. And some, somehow it always works out that a full cartoon takes up a full room. And I've never seen it not take up a full room. So any given show creator or board artist can pitch starting at the top left of a room and going down to the bottom right of the wall nearest to that wall, but not that wall, and end the cartoon. And they'll pitch it to the unit over and over again and refine it and practice it and swap out post-its. Then someone, some poor soul, has to take those post-it notes down, scan them, make a proper storyboard. Then somewhere, someone is designing props, someone's designing backgrounds, any new characters that are in this cartoon need to be designed. Someone's off designing all that stuff. Then we record. So then we record people, build a radio play of just the voices. The voices are matched to the storyboard for a boardomatic or an animatic. And then someone has to time the entire cartoon on what still is referred to as an X sheet or a dope sheet. It's like a tax form for humor. <laughs> and every single gesture, every syllable, every mouth movement is written down by how many frames it takes. And it looks like a musical score, but vertical. And it is the most complex thing. And I cannot still to this day understand how a joke comes out of someone writing that down on paper. But it does. So... In the case of Harvey Birdman, his hand would raise, it would be 17 frames to raise his hand. And then someone like I or Eric would say, no, it's funnier if it's 12 frames. And this has been the case since like 1920-whatever. That will get sent to the animation unit. The animation unit might be in South Korea, it might be in Eastern Europe, it might be in LA. And then the animators start animating. Outline first, and then ink and paint comes next, which would be color and the line work. And then that's all married to the backgrounds and all that. And then the final stage is sweetening, which is when you put in sound effects fully and then adjust levels, add music, things like that. And that's when it really gets funny. Right then is when you, it's like putting salt in the soup. Like soup isn't soup until you have a lot of salt in it. So sound effects makes the cartoon funny, I think. That is the process. See, it's so simple, right? <laughs> like we could all just go out and do this. No problem. One of the things that Michael mentioned while he was explaining how this all works is the storyboard process and the importance of storyboards and animation really cannot be overstated. And that approach to laying out a story visually was actually invented at the Walt Disney Studios by an animator named Webb Smith in the 1930s. Storyboards started at the studio, and so I think they were able to pace it 
with storyboards and they do the layout and the, the story progresses. They could move it around. And it certainly was in sync with the music that was created for the film. I think that that, that was one way they were able to achieve that. That's Michael Labrie, director of collections and exhibitions for the Walt Disney Family Museum. And he's speaking specifically about how storyboards were vital in getting music, which has always been a key part of Disney films like Fantasia and Sleeping Beauty, to really line up with what we're seeing on screen. I just think of Ivan Earl's artwork, too. It's just something about when you look at the rhythm of his artwork. To me, there's sort of this flow when you're looking at the paintings. I'm awfully sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you. Oh, it wasn't that. It's just that you're a... A, a stranger? Mm-hmm. But don't you remember? We've met before. We, we have? Well, of course. You said so yourself. Once upon a dream. I know you. Ivan Durrell was a really amazing artist. He was an incredible painter and did all kinds of great things. But the thing that he did for Disney was he designed Sleeping Beauty. So all of those amazing forests that are in Sleeping Beauty are very much in his style. And most importantly, he invented what is possibly the best villain of all time, Maleficent. Now shall you deal with me, O prince, and all the powers of hell! But the thing is, you can have the most beautiful art in the world, and if things don't sync up in line with it so what you're hearing and seeing feel right together, you're really just going to have a mess and nothing really captures that magic. It's just this wonderful sort of a slow pace and just sort of a moment to enjoy the forest. And to me, that's all that all came into play, you know, and um, and storyboards, uh, you know, they do a series of sketches and they were able to put them up on a board. So they have all of these story sketches and then they were able to arrange them um, and kind of paste them on a board that uh, everyone got to look at. And it was all, it was, a, it was like a living organism too, because they'd move them around, uh, pin them up on the wall, take them down, change the scene. So it was, uh, you know, and everybody does storyboards. And that's why this became so important. Another key to making this whole process work is something called a show Bible. And that's sort of like a guidebook for the show that everyone that's involved in the process can work from. And we asked Ollie Green, who has produced a long and impressive list of popular Adult Swim shows from Moral Oral to Rick and Morty, what makes a good show Bible and what that document needs to contain. So it'll have like a description overall blurb what the show is. And then the characters... Maybe the world, and then some log lines for potential stories. And in those stories, you know, you need to see that these are characters that you're going to want to revisit every week. A good one really has these characters fleshed out. So you know exactly who these characters are, what their deal is. You want to see something that you haven't seen before. Is the Bible normally something that the creator is totally responsible for producing? Or at that point, does someone from production kind of hold their hand and assist them along the way? It it goes both ways. So if the creator is an animator or an artist, then they may do it themselves or they may team up with a writer. 
if it's a writer-driven show, they might just pull art that just, like, kind of reference material. Like, it's going to feel like this. And, you know, so they may not have the characters totally done. They maybe found someone to do some sketches for them, but a lot of times it'll just be kind of this, like, look and feel thing. Okay, let's clone us some dog. Yeah! Very well. Let this abomination unto the Lord begin. Over and over, the people that I talked to emphasized how deeply important it is to get things right as early as possible in the process. It's good for you to make the decisions about what the character design should be when it's still a character design. It's good for you to make decisions about what happens when it's still a script. And it is expensive and wasteful, both of money and people's heart and soul, to make the change your mind later. That's Eric Kaplan. He's worked as a producer and a writer on live shows, including Malcolm in the Middle and The Big Bang Theory. But more importantly for this show, he was a writer and producer for one of my all-time favorite animated series, Futurama. Now, look, anybody can change their mind. You're allowed to. If you pay for it, you have the right to do it. You should. But just all things being equal, you'll come up with a better product if you get the story right when it's a script. Um, And then you can work on achieving that story in the board phase and then making those board panels hit comedically in the animation phase. If you've watched Futurama, probably your favorite episodes are ones that he wrote. Interesting. It seems Seymour died at the ripe old age of 15. 15? You mean he lived for 12 more years after I got frozen? Indeed. Stop the cloning. Jurassic Bark, which is the episode where we see what happens to Fry's dog Seymour, is all his doing. I'll never forget him, but he forgot me a long, long time ago. I'm going to try to keep it together, but this is so sad even describing it really breaks my heart. There's this wonderful two-minute clip at the end of the show where you see that Seymour waited literally the rest of his life for Fry to come back to him as he aged. You see this poor dog age and basically become no more slowly over time. And it's really, really heartbreaking. And Eric actually kind of gets razzed about that a lot by fans. People are like, I hate you. Because you broke my heart and made me cry by writing Jurassic Bark, um, which which makes me feel good because I feel like, well, you felt something. And that's sort of the contract between the writer and the, the, the uh, consumer, the viewer, um, that you should feel something. And if I, you felt something, that's good. So for a storyteller that can tell a story like that one we just talked about, you really have to have your plan in place ahead of time to make it work as beautifully as that one does. And Eric talked to us about just how important it is to have that plan in place as early as possible. The construction of an animated program is a little bit like the construction of a battleship. Like one of my favorite movies is Inside Out. And when I finished it, I was like, my jaw was just hanging open. I was just like, whoa, that's amazing. 
Inside Out is the 2015 Pixar film that stars a girl's emotions. That's joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness as a way to examine the inner life that we all experience as humans. Okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! I just saved our lives. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not going to get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. And I felt it was a little bit like Chart Cathedral, that it was conveying this very deep spiritual message of what our culture thinks it is to be a human being. And it, in terms of man hours, it was similar to Chart Cathedral, that 2,000 people had labored for years to make this thing and put it together. Um, and that's, I think, one thing that people may not realize is that it looks just like a cartoon, but it's like a battleship. It has had years of planning and incredibly talented professionals from the shaders to the background artists to the voiceover actors on all levels in this amazing feat of human coordination to create it. Right. right. Here comes an airplane. Oh. Airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. Eric made a really good point about how very expensive it can be to make changes, which leads to another important part of this whole animation picture, and that is the money. Particularly if you're working at a large network, none of this is free. It's not the same as if you produce a little something on the fly as an independent. So for insight into the business from the point of view of the executives running the studios, I first turned to Rob Sorcher, who is the executive vice president and chief content officer at Cartoon Network. And I asked him about how the network juggles their ideology of wanting to support creative talent versus, at the end of the day, having to meet business expectations. The hard part of the job is that someone has to be the person that signs off on the risk. And that's what my job is. And at the end of the year, there's probably five or six decisions that I'm judged on. Really, if you really boil it down, the decision to take that risk or to recognize at a very early stage that this work could have potential in a much larger way is really at the core of the job. And then, of course, putting all the pieces together and operationally moving that and making that really happen, the execution is, is really is key as well. It's not that I'm relying on only my, my own judgment for that. I'm getting a sense via other talented people of what they're responding to. I'm really looking for creative people to respond to work and to help me understand how a younger audience would receive that. Rob talked a lot about creativity being the driver for everything. But the industry has had to evolve over time to really reach this point. For example, Deke was a media company that started in the early 1980s. G.I. Joe! maybe making you think they took a lot of existing properties and toys and adapted them into shows. Brian Miller is the senior vice president and general manager of Cartoon Network Studios now. He's also worked at Hanna-Barbera and Nickelodeon, but he started his career at Deke. 
the business model for Deke was a very different business model. It was a business model based on existing properties. In most cases, it was toy properties, but not always. It could be video games. Um, it was a very different business model. And it was very clear what the goal was, right? They felt like, you know, oh, kids know G.I. Joe. So we're going to do a show about G.I. Joe. Kids know Sonic the Hedgehog. We're going to do a show about Sonic the Hedgehog. And that was a trend at that time, which was that would have been late 80s, early 90s. Certainly when I made the transition to Hanna-Barbera, that was also a point at which the industry was changing in such a way. Although I think in a lot of ways it started with Nickelodeon. I think when you look at shows like Ren and Stimpy and when you look at shows like Rugrats, I mean, those were shows that were definitely sort of moving the needle in a different direction. And I think um, Hanna-Barbera, when Fred Seibert came in and he implemented the shorts program, the What a Cartoon program. Not so fast, fuzzy lumpkins. The Powerpuff Girls. That also pushed to a new direction, which was a great direction because ultimately it brought out these new creators, these original cartoons, which again, Nickelodeon had started to do, but I think Fred's program actually brought out a lot more of that. The What a Cartoon Show is actually a really, really interesting way that Cartoon Network was developing new talent. They basically took people that had not had shows before and they let them make these little short one-offs. And then they would package these into like a regular 30-minute block of airtime, and then you could see all kinds of really new and exciting animation, a lot of which ended up being series for the show. So, for example, Dexter's Lab was first part of What a Cartoon, The Powerpuff Girls, Two Stupid Dogs, and Johnny Bravo, they all got their start on the What a Cartoon program. Enough about you, let's talk about me, Johnny Bravo. Huh? What do you think? Aren't I having a good hair day? Be brutal, mama. Excuse me? And, and I would say the studio has continued in that mode. You know, we're very much, uh, we're creator-driven. We're about new creators. We're about new properties, original properties. And um, we've, we've stayed that course in a lot of ways. But I think that the industry in general saw a lot of success with original ideas, whereas I think previously, if we go back to my Deke days or, you know, even, even beyond that, there was this period where it was, you had to have a built-in property so it was refreshing to see like, oh, original ideas can work too. And we can do shows like Dexter's Laboratory and Cow and Chicken and, and those kinds of things. So, yeah. Why did he, why? So with all of this change to really focusing on original ideas for shows that Brian just outlined for us, you might be wondering, did the production process change along with it? Well, the answer is yes and no. I love the fact that even though everything has changed technologically, it's really still the same. Those are just the tools that shift the efficiency of it. That's true. At the heart of it is like, which is why people are still surprised when I say like, oh no, they're drawing, they're drawing, they're drawing by hand. So it's still there. It's still there. And even even in the, with the Cintiqs, people, you know, you're still getting that hand drawn, handcrafted art that's coming out of there. So even though there have been developments in technology that have changed the workflow, like those Cintiqs Brian just mentioned, those are basically like big displays that an animator can directly interact with and write on with a stylus, and it works very similarly to how you would draw with a pencil. Things like that really 
change how quickly things can happen, but the process of creating a show is still very much the same as it always was, at least for network production. But there is a really fun range of variation in how different creators approach their work and run their shows. That's kind of just logical because creative people tend to find their own way in the world, so they all find their own way of doing things. Ian Jones Cordy has worked as an animator on shows like Steven Universe and Adventure Time. He's also a voice actor, but he's also the creator of the show OKKO OK Let's Be Heroes. And when it came to OKKO, he had a really specific style in mind that he wanted. And that kind of follows on Brian Miller's comment about handcrafted art. On a good amount of shows, shows that are still done in 2D and hand-drawn, Adventure Time, Steven Universe, We Bear Bears, Clarence, Regular Show, etc., etc., every single frame of those shows is drawn by human. And... For OKKO, I wanted to make sure that the audience knew that specifically. Um, So I asked the animation studios, hey, can we experiment by not inking all of the lines the same way and making sure that they maintain that like gritty sort of pencil kind of feel where, you know, you really feel like the grit and grease of the paper in the final drawings. I challenge you to a power battle! What? You can't! I told you, it's TKO, and I'm a whole different animal now. But that's just how animation is done. Like, you know, Steven Universe, like, everything is hand-drawn. And it's funny, like, I, I tell people that, and they don't believe it, because the work that's done to make it look good is so impeccable. Like, the actual inking is really clean. Uh, the lines are really straight. The characters are just dr- are drawn and rendered very well, but they were all drawn by humans. They're all inked by humans. It's, you know, it's still really old school. After talking with Ian, I wanted to get perspective on another specific show just to see how someone else might run it. So I talked to Jackson Public and Doc Hammer. Those are the creators of The Venture Brothers, another show that I am in love with. It has its roots in Johnny Quest, which is a show I loved as a kid, but it's a little edgier, so it appeals to my adult sensibilities. Don't move. The knife is still in you. The blade right between the kidney and the spleen. Just a twist. It feels almost cold. You tell me your target, and I slide the knife out. Because they both play numerous roles on production, from writing to directing to voicing most of their characters, they kind of have a unique perspective and what also sounds like a really intense production process. Okay, so first, here is Jackson describing what goes into their show getting made. If history is any indication, about three years of hemming and hawing and BS and going, sorry, we're late. Um, Doc and I kind of discuss the upcoming season in broad strokes. Usually you've got a backlog of a few ideas that you just didn't get to the season before. Or maybe you look at the season you just made and you go, oh, you know who we forgot to address or or what the gaping hole in this season was? These characters who I love and we just haven't seen them since, you know, season four or something. When we do finally turn enough scripts in that we're allowed to be able to start a production and hire people, because people have learned that when we promise scripts and don't come through with them, it's a real pain in the neck when you've already hired like 50 people and they've started working and they have nothing to draw because you're not done with a script. So um, what happens? Uh, we do two weeks of character and background design, black and white line art 
And then the storyboard artists get that stuff and the script. We somewhere in that two weeks, we record it. We cut a radio play together. Storyboard artists get like four weeks, I think. There's usually three per episode splitting the work up. We make a rough animatic out of what they did. And then that all goes off to the uh, sheet timing directors who spent, I think, two weeks doing all the sheets and doing all the timing, during which the color department is now doing their color work on the line art that was designed several months earlier. And then all that gets shipped to Korea, and they have it for, I don't know, like 14 weeks or something. Get it back, make a million retake notes, uh, figure out what stuff is our fault, what stuff is their fault, what we can afford to fix. We're not huge on, like, uh, creative retakes or, like, altering things after the fact i know on like real sitcom very expensive like network shows and stuff it's a constant punching it up and joking it up and and redoing stuff um it must be crazy to work on a show like that but we just kind of stick to the script and commit to what we did months earlier when we you know like the animatic and the storyboards and the voice recordings are really where i direct it and i just kind of go well we'll see what we get Okay, we have heard Jackson's side of things. So now here's Jackson's co-creator, Doc Hammer, describing their production process on the Venture Brothers. It's a little different. I think you're supposed to write it, and then you're supposed to say it out loud into a microphone. And then you're supposed to edit it and make sure that the thing you said into a microphone that you wrote is funny. And you're supposed to jot down what a character looks like on a piece of paper. Like, this is how cartoons are made in, in my experience. Of course, that is obviously not how cartoons get made, and he knows that. But his approach is a lot more seat of his pants, and that's informed by the fact that he came to this industry and started heading up a show without ever having worked in animation before. So this is how cartoons are made as far as I'm concerned. And it used to be far worse. I mean, it was all but a flip book, and then scripts are written on napkins. It really was much more cobbled together in the day. We used to edit it, like physically edit it with all the footage on my computer in our studio, which is my old painting studio, which didn't seem like what you should do for a professional TV show. You know, something that goes on the air should should not be edited on a computer with an ashtray tape to the top of it. Like that didn't seem right for some reason. So if that sounds a little intensely improvisational and maybe a bit scary... It certainly is, at least improvisational. And really, that's part of how Adult Swim has always had to work when it comes to producing new shows. In the beginning of the life of this late-night programming block, everything was happening on a shoestring. I talked to Adult Swim programming director Kim Manning, and she's been there since day one, and she told us about what it was like in those early days. We were in the middle of the night, right? And so it was a time where... Kids programming wasn't going to work. And so we could, we had a lot of freedom. There was no pressure. It was not, a th- I think we had like one sponsor. <laughs> and so there wasn't a lot of pressure on us. So we could do whatever we wanted, it felt like. So there was a lot of freedom in those early days to try things. Not a big budget. Gentlemen! Behold the thermostat! That's been there. Observe 
as I adjust the heat. <laughs> Is it on? You tell me. <laughs> Wait. So when we were talking to Jackson Public, you may recall that he mentioned using an overseas studio. And it might surprise some people that while the production outfits that we have been talking to are all here in the United States, a lot of the actual animation happens overseas. It's really because it's just faster and cheaper that way, and everybody's got to make their budget. One of the things you should know, though, is that sometimes this can actually backfire. You're basically communicating between two different groups that don't always share the same language. Sometimes things can get a little messy. Michael Oline, the creator of Harvey Birdman, is no stranger to this happening. When you get the first animation back and something has gone horribly wrong and someone has misinterpreted something and all of your jokes have been taken out back and shot and they are not in there. The jokes are not there anymore. They come back and you don't have any jokes and you doubt everything you know. And then you have to sit there and edit and take out frame by frame by frame. Just take it out. But it's necessary and someone has to do it. And that's when it gets funny. That's when you resuscitate the patient and it becomes funny again. So we've been talking about all of the technical aspects that have to combine to make a piece of animation. And when it all comes together correctly and everything's working, it can be really, really special. Something that tells stories, but that also becomes a sort of deal between the animators and the audience. Rebecca Sugar is the creator of the hit show Steven Universe, which, if you are not watching it, is possibly one of the most charming things you could ever witness. If you're evil and you're on the rise, you can count on the four of us taking you down. Cause we're good and evil never beats us. We'll win the fight and then go out for pizzas. We are the crystal gems. We'll always save the day. And if you think we can't, find a way that's why the people of this world believe in garnet amethyst and pearl and steven and rebecca described this relationship between the audience and the animator that we've been talking about really really beautifully what i love about it is that if you could all in order to enjoy animation you have to allow yourself to be tricked by it. So there's this in, there's this vulnerability to it that makes people feel very intensely about animation or feel nothing. The people who want to not be affected by animation, it, it will bounce off of them completely because they're like, well, that's not real. Like they don't. But the second you decide to believe it's real, it becomes so powerful because you made that decision. You let this thing into your mind. And when you look at it, and you decide, oh, that's a real person that's moving and talking and and I care about them. What they're filled with, because they're so they're they aren't real, it's it's you. You could understand it, you could see it, you could know it's not real, and you could accept that anyway, and you could love it. It's like participating in a dream. You could I get to share a dream with people. And if they're willing to, they can like join. It's not even just that they join me in my imagination, but I get to become a part of their imagination. And what they're seeing when they look at my cartoon is not what I see when I look at my cartoon. They're seeing something different that has to do with their level of understanding of animation, what they want to see when they look at something that, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> I find, just find it all really romantic. 
I think it's the most beautiful thing. Deep down, you know, you weren't built for fighting. But that doesn't mean you're not prepared to try. What they don't know is your real advantage. When you live for someone, you're prepared to die. I mean, I guess it's, it's like, it's like dancing, you know, when I'm drawing. I'm just thinking. With my short existence, good. I can make a difference. Yes. And it's expression. That's the part that I can. I don't want to say control because it's not really about control. But I, I'm a control freak and I love control. So I mean, I'm an animator. I can control things. 24 frames a second, frame by frame basis. I'm working on this thing. But I guess I'm trying to think about that now as like I can enjoy the control I have over myself and my work. And it won't extend to other people, but I will love it when they see the care that I put in. And I will really appreciate when that care is returned to me. We are the crystal gems. We'll always save the day. And if you think we can't, we'll always find a way. That idea of magic that Rebecca so eloquently described is not unique to her viewpoint. It is a common word in the language of the industry. And it's a word I've used here to talk about cartoons because I think they're magical. And even if you don't work directly to make animation come to life, it's completely obvious. Michael Labrie of the Walt Disney Family Museum described how he sees both the mathematics and the magic that are married together through the process of animation. Well, it's funny when you say that it's magical, and it is. It, it just creates this whole, you know, wonderful movement that you can relate to, uh, whether it's an animal or a person or a character of some sort. But it is very mathematical, too, though, in order to get that movement, they had to figure it out. It was 24 frames per second that created the right movement. So it's it's magical, yet it's certainly done with a formula, which is sort of interesting. It doesn't take away from that to me, but to see that, you know, we deal with a lot of um, sequences that are animation drawings and you know, we can put them on our screen and we're cataloging, but then we can do a fast movement and see an animation from them. And that's pretty magical. You know, when you just see this line drawing and how it, you know, the person that did all the in-between drawings to create that magic of that moving. It's pretty remarkable, actually. In addition to magic, one of the themes that came up over and over with everyone I spoke to was this incredible sense of community and mentorship that seems to be sort of an innate part of the industry, more so, I think, than in other areas of entertainment. So we asked people why that's the case. First up, Eric Kaplan. Uh, certainly any animation I'm involved in is a collaborative process because I can't draw but there's so many things I can't do. So anytime I'm involved in an animated process, there's a, there's a host of people uh, interacting. Uh, and, you know, I try and facilitate its transition from the unmanifest into the manifest in any way I can. And sometimes that is um, coming up with an idea and writing a script, or sometimes it is helping someone else's idea become a script, or sometimes it's taking an existing script and helping to produce it. I, I've started a company, I've hired animators in Transylvania and had 100 people working and doing things. I've punched up stuff on other people's projects. I've, I've involved, been involved in all different stages in the, in the, I suppose, what for want of a better phrase, one might call the production process of animation. 
That sense of collaboration and the community that naturally grows out of it is part of why mentorship also naturally happens in the animation community. There is this almost instinctual way that every generation of producers and animators tends to share their knowledge just to ensure that the next generation has all the opportunities and tools that they need to explore the medium and find the avenues that are going to carry animation to the next level. Seth Green and Matt Senreich talked about how giving people an entry into the industry is a huge part of how they work on Robot Chicken. Creatively, it is one of the things we love about our show is we like to bring in our, our pool of talent. We like to bring in people who have never really worked on much before. So it's kind of, it becomes part of our way in which we do things. I always say like the people who started on our show to watch what they've turned into, they're I think it was something I like I did. It was like 60 or 70 percent of our writers have turned into showrunners. And it's amazing to watch that happen. And, um, you know, it's just a different sensibility in how they they write and uh, do their own projects after. Totally. Well, we try and encourage we really try and help people (laughs) get awesome, you know, especially somebody that's already awesome. You're like, oh, you just need a push or you just need access or you just need an opportunity. You just you just. You need somebody to see how awesome you are. We can help you with that. In another example of mentorship, Michael Olin shared with us an example of how an industry great really gave him all the tools he needed. I had a breakfast with Chuck Jones in New York and his wife and at the Four Seasons. And he looked exactly like he thought, you know, he had his little straw hat on and looked like a latter-day Mark Twain. And sat there and taught me everything I needed to know right there in that breakfast about doing animation. Seriously. He was like, it's all about character. That's it. All you have to do is have good characters and know what they're going to do and believe in your characters. And that's all you have to do. And that's it. That's the only advice I ever I ever needed, really. It's so simple. It's so simple. <laughs> He also talked about, you know, building a great team and blah, blah, blah. But if you don't organize around characters that feel alive, um, nothing's going to happen. And everything comes, out of, everything comes out of the characters. He's like, if it doesn't come out of the characters, it's not worth doing. So make sure you have a character there. And then he went on to describe to me the personality of the characters that I, we know. Like he went on to describe why Daffy is Daffy. We're like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I could figure it out by watching it. Thank you. You did a good job, Chuck. Stand back, musketeers. They shall sample my blade. Touche. <clears throat> okay, just in case you don't know who Chuck Jones is, he is a legend in animation. Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies are what he's famous for, and his work there was phenomenal. Odds are, if you have spent any time watching cartoons, at some point you have seen his work, and you were likely tremendously charmed by it. And in addition to believing in your characters, Jones really felt like the best thing you could do to guide your work was to make your production team laugh. We felt that we could make each other laugh, and hopefully the audience would follow. And it did. That ideology of the team entertaining each other and really relying on each other's senses of humor has led to shows that delight viewers for decades, and it inspires new generations to make their own cartoons. Today's creators feel the exact same way about it. Once again, here are Matt Senreich and Seth Green of Robot Chicken. People always ask if we're trying to, like, hit certain things. It's really just, it's a bunch of friends hanging out trying to make each other laugh. And I think that's been the core of... 
every season is, you know, we have our still core group that does it every season and we bring in like a couple extra writers who just become part of that family. They get to know us. And then if we can make each other laugh, we're hoping other people will be able to enjoy that as well as we do. Just want it to be fun. Yeah. Like it, it is hard work and it is a long yeah. duration and all of us are exhausted at the end of it. But it, it, it has to be fun along the way or the content's no good. Okay, there was one that looked like if a baby snake was a baby baby. Nah, that's not right. There was another one that looked like if an anthill were a girl. Nah, that's not right. There's one of them that looked like a wet uncle. Nah, that's not right. There was a lady that looked like black drinks on a cake pop. Seth mentioned that creating animation is really hard work. And that sentiment was echoed by virtually everyone in the industry that I spoke with. But they all still love it. They talked about what a great industry it is to work in and how much they love their jobs. So for any aspiring animators or producers out there, I wanted to close with some of the nuggets of wisdom that our various interviewees dropped on us during our conversations. If you love animation and you think you'd like to work in this industry, but you are worried that you're not suited to it because you're not an artist, there are lots of other options. Linda Semensky has worked at Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon, and she is currently vice president of children's programming at PBS. You're going to hear more from her later in the series. And she describes how she realized the myriad possibilities for jobs in animation. You know, it's pretty natural to think, okay, if I want to work in animation, I should be able to animate. And the truth is, you know, I, I tried animating in high school in uh, a filmmaking class and was not impressed with the results and thought, well, the world doesn't really need another third-rate animator. And that ended that. You know, I never really pursued it after that until I, uh, I, I started in college. I started seeing independent film and I started thinking, okay, that's the area I'd really like to work in. How does one get a job in that? And you know, I, I was a little more knowledgeable about how the world worked at that point, and I thought, you know, are there are there possibilities for working in this industry where you don't have to be an animator? Like, can you be the person who runs the company where they make these things? You know, I was still not really sure how it all worked, but, you know, when, as soon as I started to understand that there were many other people involved in making things other than just the people who actually make them, uh, it all started to make sense to me after that. Linda mentioned a career in executive leadership, but that's just one of many jobs you might consider if you love animation, but drawing isn't your forte. You could become a voice actor, or you could make music or sound for cartoons, or you could work in something like licensing. We're actually going to talk about all of those jobs in upcoming episodes of this series. And thanks to technology, a whole new world of possibilities is opening up in the field of animation. One of my favorite pieces of advice came from Ollie Green, and she encouraged aspiring animators to just start animating with what you've already got. I mean, I tell people to not wait for anybody to hire them. You know, like if what they want to do is animate or make animated shows or make any kind of show, like just do it. Like 20 years ago, it was a lot harder to just make something. Now everybody has a camera on their phone, you know, in their pocket at all times. 
that level of available technology that Ollie mentioned is really important because it is changing things already. But it's also setting up the industry in this really exciting way for a whole new generation of innovators. This actually came up in my talk with Ian Jones Cordy. You remember we talked to him earlier about his show, OKKO OK Let's Be Heroes. Ian talked about how the kids that have grown up animating since as long as they can remember are going to have a massive impact on animation's future. When I was a kid, I really wanted to do 2D animation, didn't have any way to do that any shape or form. I used to like just line up paper and trace the characters and make the animation. And then I created a light box out of like a see-through clipboard and a light that I would put under it and like animate that way. Um, and this was before, you know, the advent of, uh, like, say, Flash. Like, I didn't have Flash as a kid, but that's something that, like, basically any young animator has access to. I feel immensely jealous of kids who have access to animation software, like, on their computers as kids. Like, I would have given anything for that. And I think that uh, I work with a lot of younger animators who cut their teeth on, you know, these Flash, like, animations like they did when they were like seven or eight you know and they've been animating their entire lives that's going to change everything uh for the better i think there's going to be people who think and breathe and eat this stuff in a way that we still haven't seen like the full results of i think you know the next generations of animators are going to be like the best yet for sure Welcome to my show. Freak and toys, freak and toys. My God, you killed me. Buttercup. Kill! My name is... I'm right, Jack. That is where you'll find me. Quit your griping, Grim. It's almost chicken time. Oral. Come on, grab your friends. Call Kenny Loggins, because you're in the danger zone. Over love a dub dub I personally cannot wait to see what's next in animation. As I've said from the beginning, I love animation and I like seeing how it develops. And knowing that the current animators are just as excited to see what happens next bodes really well for the stories and the art that we're all going to get to see in the future. Maybe you didn't know that all of this stuff, all of these years of work have to go into that show that you just sit back and enjoy and that feels spontaneous to you. But I guarantee you're feeling it. You're feeling what all of those people put into it. It is so much time and effort. But in the end, it still manages to feel very real, very visceral, and ultimately can bring people together in a, a shared moment of magic and relatability. Every moment now is... Special, just as long as I am spending it with you, you and you and you. So now that you're good and inspired, I want you to tune in next time because we're going to go back even further to the early days of animation in the U.S. and talk about how all of these processes got developed. So the principle of animation, which does something very different, instead of reconstructing or recording time, what animation does is it creates time. It creates motion and event and action that never happened in the real world. And it's the original cinema. Many thanks to all of the guests who appeared on today's show for taking the time to talk with me. Every conversation was an absolute delight for me, and I feel so lucky to have had them. 
I also wanted to say a very special thanks to the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco for having my producer Noel and I out as guests. For info on their upcoming exhibits and for show notes on this episode and to just check out other episodes, you can go to drawnpodcast.com. If you'd like to email the podcast, you can do so at drawn at howstuffworks.com. You can also find the show across social media as Drawn Podcast. That means on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So there'll be all kinds of goodies going up there that you can share and look at and see some of the things we've been talking about on the show. 